0: Good morning, Enon Baptist Church, and thank you uh, for a wonderful morning of worship. Uh, it is no doubt, it is incredibly clear who your king is, and the reason why you showed up this morning was to give him glory in all things. And so it's a privilege to join with you uh, in worshiping him together. It's a, it's, we're grateful for the invitation to share this morning about the calling that God has given us and the work he's leading us into, but even more so, uh, I think, to share with you the heart of God from Scripture for all people, for the mission of God. Uh, it's been a great weekend so far. Uh, thank you, Pastor Zach, for the invitation. Uh, yesterday, our family got to hang out with the Goforths, and about five minutes into hanging out together at Cracker Barrel, our little girls were already holding hands with each other, and so we thought we knew this was going to go well, so we're super grateful. It was a surprise and a lot of fun this past summer getting to run into Pastor Zach. We were down in New Orleans for the Southern Baptist Convention. Jessica and I were actually down there Uh, representing kind of a new thing in Southern Baptist life called the Diaspora Missions Collective. And so I got to awkwardly sit on a panel in the middle of the booth hall uh, while there was a lot of noise around us. I would say probably my favorite thing from that weekend, though, is running into people. And the highlight, I think one of them was running into Zach. He was our pastor uh, for a few years together in Arkansas. And so it is an honor to be back today. So when we ran into him and told him what we were up to, he said, well, I need to have you out uh, to Enon Baptist. And we were we were excited about that. But I was a little nervous because I didn't quite know what story I wanted to preach from, what passage of Scripture. And it really wasn't until a couple of weeks ago uh, that we were a leading small group back in Arkansas. And we've got, I don't know about you, we've got about 20 kids. In our small group. There's only like four families, so we're highly outnumbered. And so a lot of what we do is lower the expectation and the lower the bar on adult conversation, and we really try to cater to the kids a lot, which usually results in Bible story time with Jamie. Uh, So uh, that night, I think all the adults had just had enough of it. It was one of those cold, rainy nights. We had been plugging away for a lot of weeks, and one of the little girls, actually the little girl of the host family, came up to me and she said, Mr. Jamie, where's our Bible story? I said, "Oh, sweetie, not tonight. Uh, we don't have much time. Your daddy's gonna have to do the Bible story tonight. We got text messages. I think she was angry at us. Uh, I didn't know people liked me that much. Um, it's probably just the kids, but uh, we we summed up things really quickly that night by simply asking what question. This one question: Who's your favorite Bible character?" We had been studying in Hebrews chapter 11, the heroes of the faith and all the amazing things that, that the men and women of, old, of the Old Testament would do to show their faith in King Jesus. And so we're just curious, who's your favorite Bible character? And it was really fun to get to know your small group that way by who they really lean into in Scripture. Uh, this time of year, I always want to know more about Joseph, Jesus' earthly dad, right? Like we just don't get a whole lot in Scripture about his life and what kind of man he was. But I just wish I knew a lot more about him. Uh, But it got me thinking about other Bible characters and other Bible stories that I really like. And it led me to this. Uh, I really love the story about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, I I believe it kind of encapsulates this idea that it takes the whole church to take the whole gospel to the whole world. That God wants to advance the gospel through everyday people playing whatever their part is that he has assigned them to reach every people group. Uh, sadly, I turned away the little girl that wanted a Bible story, but it reminded me immediately in that moment that Jesus really loves kids. He actually has some harsh warnings about turning away kids, so don't ever do that. Uh, but, but we feel called to be a family on mission. I imagine looking out into this room, a lot of you do as well. Kids are a big deal in the kingdom. Not just in the kingdom, but also for the kingdom. And so a few years ago when we started asking God, where do you want us to go? We sent you moving our family, but what does that look like? One of our big prayers was, how can our family together make the greatest impact for the kingdom? That was a dangerous prayer to ask, to pray, I might put out there. Um, If you want to take that dare and that challenge this morning, go ahead, okay? God might answer it in some really exciting ways. And so I'm going to invite you today to turn to Acts chapter 8 which tells the story of someone whose calling was not specifically to missions. This man was not necessarily called as a missionary. He actually had a very specific role in the church that we'll see in just a moment, yet the mission of God was in his blood. He just couldn't run away from it. When we speak of missions on a a mission Sunday like this, we rightfully think of passages like Matthew chapter 28 or Acts chapter 1. But aside from those commandments to go and be witnesses and make disciples of all nations, what are some core convictions, some core beliefs of those who are going to live sent? Some foundational things, I believe, of people who are going to be sent out by God, sent out by the church, or to be senders of those, or to live sent in your daily life. I think there are just some core foundational convictions that we need to have. The story of Philip and the eunuch is fun for a lot of reasons, but I think it gives us some of those foundational truths, some of those abiding truths that we as missional people following a missional God need to believe with all our heart. We certainly do. As we head to New York City this next year to see Muslims engaged with the gospel and churches planted among Arab peoples from there to around the world, we need to hold on to these things ourselves. And I think Acts chapter 8 gives us a glimpse of that. So the first thing I want us to see this morning is that to be God-sent people, we need to believe that the Father has always been at work among the nations for their good and His glory. Look at what Luke, authoring Acts, says in chapter 8, verse 1. He says that Saul approved of his execution, he being Stephen. We'll get into that in just a minute. Saul approved of Stephen's execution. He was a early church deacon that had been set aside to serve the widows, both Hebrew and Greek widows in the early church. He was called out along with six other guys to be servants. We call them deacons. It is It is Stephen who becomes probably the most passionate proclaimer of the gospel in the early pages of scripture, so much so that he is the first martyr for the faith. He is stoned to death and Saul, who we'll later know as Paul, is the one approving of his execution. And it says that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they, being the church, were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for who? Except for the apostles. To be an apostle is actually to be a sent out one. Yet when persecution arose, the ones that were being sent out were the everyday church people. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, just a side note. You don't usually get committed to prison if you haven't been much of a threat. And so these folks, both men and women, are probably passionately sharing the gospel with their neighbors, and and word of that is spreading, and it's making people upset. But those who were scattered went about doing what? Preaching the word. And Philip, a new guy to the story, went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ the context of these first few verses of Acts chapter 8 is really the previous seven chapters. I don't, I don't know the time period between chapters 1 and chapter 7, but it feels like the narrative is moving pretty quick, as though it could just be a short amount of time between each of these events. So Jesus in Acts chapter 1, he commands his disciples to be his witnesses From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He then ascends into heaven and the Holy Spirit as promised comes and empowers them to do so. And so very quickly they start preaching the gospel. Peter stands up at the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Easter, right? And there were gathered in Jerusalem, God-fearing people from a multitude of nations. You go through the list and you're going to see all sorts of nations and languages represented there in Jerusalem. They had come to worship, excuse me, they had come to worship at the Festival of the Weeks, the time every year where Jews would celebrate and commemorate the giving of the law to Moses as he was leading the people out of Egypt along the Exodus. And so they come every year to worship in Jerusalem to honor this day and people from all over the known world, god fears from other languages, from other tribes, from other people groups, have come to Jerusalem to worship. And that is where Peter stands up and delivers his sermon, where 3,000 are added to the church on one day, where the apostles begin preaching around Jerusalem. And as they do, it gains the attention of religious leaders from various synagogues who are upset about the preaching of Jesus as the Messiah. So much so that in Acts chapter 6, after the church becomes more diverse with Hebrews and Greeks joining in one body and tensions arise among them, the church actually sets out people to serve as deacons so that the apostles can pray and preach. And at the same time, these synagogue leaders are starting to persecute and pursue them so that one of those deacons, Stephen, As he's preaching the gospel, as we just mentioned, he gets stoned to death. Paul approves it. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, persecution breaks out. But what men were intending for evil in the persecuting of this faith in Jesus, God was actually using for good. You see, Jesus had told them, Be my witnesses. From Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. But for the first seven chapters, where is the early church hanging out? Still in Jerusalem. They didn't get going very quickly, did they? Not until they were kind of forced out through persecution. And so we see the mission of God happening through the scattering of his people. A friend of mine likes to say that we don't often Acts 1-8 until we experience Acts 8-1. Sometimes it takes God doing some pretty dramatic things in our lives to get us out of our seats and out on mission with him. Sometimes not so much. Sometimes it's just a subtle nudging. It wasn't the original apostles who were initially scattered as missionaries, though they eventually did that. The first missionaries, if you will, were normal men and women. As circumstances brought them to new places, they were faithful to preach The gospel. And that's where we meet Philip, one of those seven deacons. We don't know a whole lot about Philip in this story. All we know really is that he was a man full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit, and a good reputation among others. That's a good list of qualities, I think. Those aren't things you can learn at school, by the way. You don't get that at Bible college or seminary. Those things come from an intimate walk, an intimate relationship with King Jesus. He gives you His Spirit at salvation, and the more you surrender to Him and submit to Him in your daily life, He fills you with His Spirit. Scripture promises that He will give wisdom to any who ask. And I don't know about a lot of you, but I feel like the good reputation thing is just something I try on a daily basis not to mess up too much. But all of us could hopefully be described as people who are full of the Spirit, full of wisdom and have a good reputation with others out in the community, among our neighbors and other people around the world. That's the Philip, who wasn't initially assigned the task of being a missionary, but found himself in that position, and he didn't hold back. We'll skip over verses 6 through 25, where he's preaching throughout Samaria, and we'll pick up in verse 26, where we see that the mission of God is working through the nations and among the nations to which he has called us. It says in verse 26, "'An angel of the Lord said to Philip, "'Now rise and go to the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza.'" This is a desert place. "'So Philip rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure.'" He had come to Jerusalem to worship, presumably with that multitude of nations going up for the festival of weeks. And now he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading from the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip hesitated. He said, hold on, I need to pray about this. Philip ran over, and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? The Ethiopian here. It's probably a man from modern-day Sudan. Ethiopia, Ethiopian was just kind of the word that the New Testament writers had to describe people from that part of the world, but Ethiopia really wasn't a country as we know it today. These are probably ancient Kushites in modern-day northern Sudan, people that I would have worked among as one of your IMB missionaries. A lot of them could trace their lineage back to biblical characters. I'll never forget meeting a man. He was Sudanese. His name was Jonadab. He actually picked up his name from the story of Jonadab in the book of Jeremiah. There likely were people that were descendants of a guy named Ebed Melech from Jeremiah's book as well. Probably even this eunuch had family members and friends that eventually would be known to me generations later, working as one of your missionaries there. He was worshiping in Jerusalem, which I think is a partial fulfillment of Jeremiah 38 through 39. Where another Ethiopian man, Eben Melek, actually pulls Jeremiah out of a well and saves him and rescues him. And God promises that he's going to bless him and save him as well. Some translations says that Philip was told to go down about noon. Most translations, I think, probably say he's told to go south, regardless of whether he's telling you when to go or where to go. I think this is true, though. God knows the where's and the when's of our lives. He knew at that time of day on that particular road, there would be an Ethiopian man whose heart was drawn to him, who he had been calling out of the animism and the pluralism of his African religions and leading him into the worship of the one true God. That particular man was going to be on that particular road at that particular time of day. And there just so happened to be by God's providence, Philip being positioned to meet him there. God knows the wares and the winds of our life, but more importantly, he wants to meet us there, just as he wants to meet that Ethiopian man on that road on that day. Even though he was an outsider culturally and religiously, God was already at work in his life, and that's not a new thing. Paul says in Acts chapter 17, standing in the Areopagus in Athens, preaching to the Greeks about the resurrection of Jesus, he says that God made, in verse 26, from one man all the nations of mankind, and he has determined where they live and when they live there for the sake of them seeking after him and finding him, though he's actually not far from any one of us. God not just not doesn't only know where you are and when you're there and what your need is in that moment. He is actively working in that. Some people would say he is orchestrating the movement of the nation so that they might have opportunity to hear the gospel. So, it's no coincidence, Alabama, that you have Arabic churches, Cambodian churches, Chinese churches, Hispanic churches. It's no coincidence that yesterday when we were in Birmingham, we lost track of the different nations we were meeting at the Science Center, of the Arabs and the Hindus and all sorts of other people that were present there. That's no accident. That is by God's providence that people from some of the most unreached places on earth for whom it is very difficult for our missionaries to gain legal access, where resources are limited, where persecution is high, where new believers often have to remain in secret for a while, at the threat of persecution. It is no coincidence then that God opens up seemingly a back door for them to come within reach of the Bible Belt. Or to major global cities, even like New York. It's not accidental. God is at work. He always has been at work. It is his heart that the nations be reached. I don't know about you, but I'm grateful for that. I look at my own life. I've got grandparents that are German, Russian, French. My uncle took one of those 23andMe DNA tests not too long ago. It came back and said I was just about 1% North African. I was really excited about that. Having spent so much time there, I felt like they really, truly were my cousins now, you know? I would say for the majority of us in this room, most of us are cultural outsiders. As Ephesians says, we were strangers and aliens to the promises of God. But God having a heart for the nations meant that God had a heart for you. And he still does for every single one of us, for every tribe, language, and people. It's not a Baptist thing. It's not a New Testament thing. It's not a thing that started with Jesus when he gave the Great Commission. It is a God thing. It has been from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. And every page in between, you see God's heart for all people in all places. Genesis chapter 1, God gives the command to man and woman to be fruitful, to multiply. Yeah, grow families, but more than that, multiply image bearers and fill the earth with them. He calls out one particular family through Abram, through which he's going to bless all the nations. And in Genesis chapter 17, he even renames him to be the father of many nations. And when he even gives his first covenant, the covenant of circumcision with Abraham's family, Did you know that Ishmael was one of the first ones to receive that covenant? Did you know that there were foreigners from all the nations that had attached themselves to Abram? Go back and read Genesis chapter 17. Those who were strangers and aliens to the promises of God in the most exclusive moment of God's choosing of a people for himself, he still left the door open for others to come in. And he still does the same today. All throughout Israel's history, they were commanded to declare the glory of the Lord among the nations. They were promised in Habakkuk too that the glory of the Lord would fill the earth. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that it is in Christ that God was reconciling the world to himself. So when Jesus finishes his work on the cross and he gets out of that grave and he commands his disciples to go, he wants them to make disciples of all nations. He empowers them with the spirit to do so. And he even promises in Matthew chapter 24 verse 14 that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout all the world As a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. There is a lot of work to do. Because if you read the end of the story, you see the promise that was made as a promise that is kept. Revelation chapter 5, 9, and 7, 9, we see a vision of a victorious yet crucified lamb standing in the throne room. And around him are gathered a multitude that no one can number from every nation, tribe, language, and people falling before him declaring that salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. This missional God calls out and sends out a missional people. As I mentioned, the early church was mobilized through persecution. I pray that your, your following of him doesn't happen in such a dramatic matter. It didn't for my family. It actually came in the stillness of COVID-19. Let's not go back there, okay? But in 2020, we spent a lot of time on our patio, and that was actually kind of sweet. A lot of chaos and unknown things happening around us. You could claim in that moment Psalm 4610, right, that says, Be still and know that I am God. But have you ever read the rest of that verse? That's just kind of getting you ready, if you will. Because in the stillness of knowing God, he follows it up with this. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. It was in that stillness that our family heard the call to go and make an impact through our family, with our lives, among the unreached. We didn't know where that was. Originally, we thought that was overseas. But God just wouldn't let us run away from New York City. It's a city of seekers. People are seeking all sorts of things there. They're seeking wealth, prosperity, fame. They're seeking to get out of things. They're seeking to run away from stuff. A lot of the people that are there are seeking to get out. And the nations are there. And if I believe Acts chapter 17, the nations are there because ultimately they're seeking after God. One and a half million Muslims in just a few square miles, hundreds of thousands from North Africa and the Middle East, where some of the highest rates of persecution are, have made a home in places like Queens and Brooklyn. We just couldn't escape it. From this city, perhaps the most influential in the world, the unreached are within reach. The unreached can be reached. This morning, though, I want to ask you a question. Do you see the nations like God does? Are you burdened for the 7,000-plus unreached people groups around the world and the billions of people in them that will never have a witness to the gospel if a missionary does not go to them, who will die and enter hell hopeless? Are you burdened for the thousands of people within walking and driving distance of this very church, of your homes, of your schools, of your workplaces, who the same is true for them if they don't believe in Jesus will enter hell for all of eternity? If that is true, then God sent people have to believe that the work of Jesus is, was, and always will be the only way of salvation. Look at what happens next in this story. The eunuch said, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shear is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. So who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. So the eunuch said to Philip after reading Isaiah chapter 53, About whom I ask you does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and, beginning with this scripture, told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Philip knew his Old Testament so well that he was able to start with Isaiah 53 and preach the gospel. Jesus did the same thing on the road to Emmaus. One minute he wasn't there, the next minute he was walking alongside two of his disciples. They didn't recognize him initially, They started to ask some questions and he started to open up their minds to all the scripture from Genesis up until that point that prophesied that the Messiah, the suffering servant, would atone for their sins. He opened their eyes to Jesus on every page of scripture, just as the heart of God for all nations and on every page of scripture. So Philip here with the eunuch from the Old Testament preaches the gospel. That's a challenge to me. I don't know if that's a challenge to you. Do I know the Old Testament well enough that I could pick up Habakkuk or Lamentations or one of the other prophets and preach the gospel of Jesus from it? Because that's what they did. Isaiah 53 beautifully talks about how a suffering servant came to take our iniquity, us. All of us who like sheep have gone astray, our iniquity has been laid upon him. And as it is laid upon him, he gives us in return his righteousness, just like 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, that God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. First time I really read this story and paid attention to it, I was actually in Sudan trying to learn Arabic and I wasn't that good at it. It Took me a while. But I wanted to share the gospel. I didn't want to waste any time. You didn't come here for me. I didn't come here to sit. I came here to preach. And so even though I'm learning how to speak, I'm going to do all that I can to share the gospel. So I took this story at face value. I took out some index cards and I decided every day I was going to ride the bus until it ran out on its route. And so as I'm sitting on the bus for hours, I'm filling up index cards with this passage of scripture in Arabic on one side. And on the other side, I would write 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first five verses or so that talk about... of. All the things I could share with you, I want the gospel to be of greatest importance. Jesus died according to scripture for our sin. He was raised from the dead according to scripture so that we might have life in him, right? So I put this in Arabic on the other side. And as I'm sitting on a bus, people are leaning over my shoulder asking me, who is this? What is this? And I didn't know how to respond, so I just flipped the index card over. And I just let them read in Arabic the gospel. And it wasn't the greatest thing in the world, but it worked for a little while until I could start having better conversations with them. They needed to know the truth of the gospel. It wasn't good enough for the eunuch to just believe in one God. He had to know him personally through Jesus. God not only determines where we live and when we live there for the sake of the gospel, he's also determined a day which he will send his son to return to judge the living and the dead. And he has appointed him as the judge by raising him from the dead. As Carl Henry says, though, the good news is only good news if it gets there in time. Oh, but praise be to Jesus. Yes, he is the only way But it is precisely through him being the only way that he allows an African eunuch who had no other way of being part of God's family to come in. Simply by faith. No longer conditioned by his observance to the law or his family lineage or anything else. All he had to do was freely receive the gift that was given to him. And the same is true for you and I. He might have been working for the queen, but now his loyalty was to King Jesus. And friends, there are millions of people around the world sitting in that position. There are thousands of them near to this church. Do we truly believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation? Because if we do, then we must believe also that the Spirit wants to work in and through us to accomplish His mission. God sent people don't just love to talk about missions. They don't like to raise flags. They truly believe that Jesus is the only solution to our sin problem and that the Spirit is working through us as individuals to meet it. God sent people believe the Spirit works in and through them to accomplish God's mission. Look how the story ends. Verse 39, after the eunuch is baptized, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. If any of you grew up in the mid-90s, you might understand this illustration. I grew up playing Super Mario Brothers on the original Nintendo. Anybody else in here? That was a great Christmas present. It's still a good one today if you can find it, right? Super Mario Brothers, if you wanna jump from one world to the next, this kind of sandy-looking tornado comes out of nowhere, picks up Mario, and then drops him off several levels later, right? It's pretty incredible. I can't get that image out of Acts chapter eight, and I hope that you never can also. I hope that you always see Super Mario Brothers taking away Philip to another level. It says that he just was in one place and then found himself in Azotus. We don't know much about the rest of Philip's life other than this. He became known as the evangelist. That wasn't his original calling, but that's what he got really good at doing. That's what he was passionate about. We meet him in Acts chapter 21 as Paul is finishing up his missionary journeys, his three daughters actually prophesied that Paul's going to be persecuted and handed over to the Romans. So we don't know much about his story, but we do know that he lived a life of continuing to passionately preach the gospel. The eunuch goes on his way rejoicing, and, and we don't have anything else in Scripture really to go on other than a slight mention that some early church fathers connect the dots. You see, the early church father Irenaeus names this eunuch as a man named Simon Bacchus. He says, and so did so many others, that after he left here with Philip, he went down to modern-day Sudan to the Kushite kingdom, and he started preaching the gospel. I mean, you got to envision he's not the only one in this caravan. There was a chariot driver, attendants, and servants. This has been a fairly public conversation. He gets down into the water and is baptized. That didn't happen in private. All these other people from Ethiopia are watching this happen, so you know it's a long journey from Gaza down to Sudan. They had a lot to talk about. About, and Philip literally just opened up the Old Testament for them. And so we know from early church history that the Cushite kingdom became eventually a Christian kingdom. You can go to Sudan and you can uncover out of the sand ancient churches that were just buried by layers and layers in years and years of sand. But what else happened to the eunuch? Well, as I mentioned, Irenaeus says that his name was Simon. And other early church fathers say that eventually he made his way back from North Africa up to Antioch. In Acts chapter 13, it says that there were a group of prophets and teachers gathered there at the church in Antioch. One of them named Simon, an African man. And it was in that group in a prayer meeting, fasting and worshiping the Lord, that the Spirit calls out and tells these church leaders, Simon being one of them, to set aside for him Paul and Barnabas for the work that he has given them. You see, this Ethiopian man at one point was just a recipient of the gospel. Over time, he became a participant in the gospel, a proclaimer, a preacher of the gospel, if you will. And later on in the story, we see him as a sending one, a mobilizer of the gospel. I think he wants to do the same with every one of us in here. To not just receive it, but to be active in proclaiming it and sending others to do the same. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. That we have each been given a ministry and a message of reconciliation. And do you know what that makes you? That makes you an ambassador for Christ. Because God sent people believe that the Spirit works in and through them to accomplish His mission. And maybe the greatest question this morning I can ask you is this. Do you? Do you believe that? That God wants to use you in His grand mission to reach all people? both here and everywhere. God called me into this when I was a college student and took a short-term mission trip to Egypt, and it ruined my life in so many ways. Towards the end of that trip, we had found ourselves in Alexandria up along the coast, and we had spent several days sharing the gospel in the city, and we had been scheduling follow-up conversations One morning, we came down for breakfast, anticipating we were going to go back out and meet our friends to finish those conversations and make contact with local churches there they could follow up with. When our Egyptian friend who is hosting us, the pastor there, came down and he said, well, friends, I have some bad news and I have some good news. Here's the bad news. Standing outside those gates of this compound are a bunch of angry men. They heard that there were American Christians preaching the gospel around the streets of Alexandria this week, and they have been given the authority as secret police and military personnel and guards of this city to arrest and deport anyone who walks out of these gates. Our faces kind of drop. We're done for. We're toast. But the good news is they don't know that you're here excuse me, could you say that again? They don't know that you're here. You see, last night, another group arrived who had been making a lot more noise and doing things in a disrespectful way around the city, and that's really who upset them and got their attention. But they don't know the difference between you. They just know the first Americans to walk out those doors they're going to arrest and deport. Could you explain the good news again? We're still waiting on that. They don't know that you're here. And do you remember the days of Noah when God kept them safe in the ark, gathering animals two by two? Well, we're going to pray that he does the same as I send you out. Could you get back to the good news again? Let's pray. So he literally, mid-conversation, bows his head and starts to pray, and he prays something kind of like this. Oh, King Jesus, there are angry men outside wanting to arrest my friends, but my friends are inside wanting to share the gospel with people out there. So, as in the days of Noah, when you brought people two by two into the ark, I'm going to send them out two by two, right past those angry men. And when they do, would you blind their eyes so they don't see them go, so they can go preach the gospel to their friends? Oh, and also, Jesus, we have thrown away the motors. We have cut our anchors. We are sailing, we are sailing, we are sailing. Amen. We're still waiting on the good news. He finished a prayer. It sounds like he's about to send us out those doors. Who's the first two to go? Raise your hands. Twelve of us lined up. And I kid you not, the minute he opened the gates to that compound and the first two people stepped foot on the other side, a good old Middle Eastern sandstorm blew down the streets. All those soldiers and police officers turned their eyes into their elbows and tried to wipe the dust out of their eyes, As two people walked down a couple blocks, turned the corner, jumped into a minivan and covered up with blankets, the gate was shut, the dust storm stopped. Who's next? Two more step up to the gate, opens the gate, a good old Middle Eastern sandstorm sweeps through, blinds the eyes of the police officers. Two more walk down the block, around the corner, hide in the minivan. That happened for all 12 to get out. Went throughout the city of Alexandria, meeting up with people, sharing the gospel, connecting them with local believers for follow up. Made our way back to the compound. During a shift change, conveniently, when no one was there, we were encouraged to get out. The bus pulls up, starts taking us out of the compound. About five minutes later down the road, we get a phone call from the manager that says they just got an arrest warrant, they were allowed to come into the compound. While that other group was swimming in the swimming pool, they jumped in with them and handcuffed them. And now they're on their way to the airport. Sad for those guys, they didn't get to experience very much of Egypt after that. But I've always lived with that story as kind of a life motto. I don't want to be anchored in anything but King Jesus. I want my life to be characterized by sailing with the Spirit. And I don't know what that looks like for you. It looks like one thing for me and my family. The anchors that we have to cut might be different from yours. It might be living situations. It might be certain relationships that look different in the future. I don't know what it costs you to do what the Lord calls you to do. But as we depart this morning, would you ask yourselves these questions? First of all, what anchors keep you from following Christ today? From trusting in him for salvation? For any one of us to come to him, we've got to cut something aside. We've got to come to him dependent. What anchors keep you from making your faith public? For the eunuch, as soon as he found water, he got baptized. Would you cut anchors on any fear or anything holding you back and come down this morning, grab Pastor Zach's hand and say, I need to be baptized? And for the rest of us, what anchors keep you from playing your part in the mission of God? What are they? A few years ago, we just had to simply say yes to Jesus. We didn't know all the details. That might be your first step today. But what anchors are keeping you from playing your part in the mission of God? May your only anchor be in Christ. And may the rest of your life be characterized by sailing wherever he leads you, according to his will. Would you pray for this morning? God, thank you for your kindness and generosity to us in the gospel. Thank you for your saving grace, God. I pray for this church family, for Enon Baptist Church, that they would continue to find their place in your mission, both here locally and around the world. Continue to bless them as they are so generous in their stewardship of what you've given them. Father, even in their people, that there might be some yeses this morning, yeses to Jesus, yeses to making that public, God, yeses to whatever you're leading them into next for themselves and for their families. Father, we are grateful and we pray that you get all the glory from our lives, from this church, from our time that we have on earth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.